No, I don't. Okay, can you write that down for me? Because I'm liable not to remember. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. I'm, I'm glad to see that you're all here despite the time change. You remembered. Uh, okay, hymn 448, stanzas 1, 2, and 7. Hymn 448. Oh, darkest woe, ye tears forth flow, hazard so sad a wonder, God the Father's only Son, now is buried yonder. Oh, sorrow, dread, our God is dead, upon the cross extended, there is love and life and does, as his life was ended. O Jesus Christ, who sacrificed thy life for lifeless mortals, be my life in death and Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy upon us sinners. Amen. Again we pray. O God, you see that of ourselves we have no strength. By your mighty power, defend us from all adversities that may happen to the body and from all evil thoughts that may assault and hurt the soul. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Okay. The verse of the week from the Congregation at Prayer, Romans 8, 26. Let's do this together. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us, with the which cannot be Okay. Uh, in, in the explanation of the third article of the Creed from the Catechism, you confess, I believe that I cannot believe. Romans 8.26 is related to that. Because in essence, what you are saying, or what St. Paul is saying, is you know that you cannot pray. You don't know how to pray. You don't know what to say when you pray. And even when you do try to pray, somehow it's always woefully inept. Which is okay. It is okay. Uh, we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself makes intercession. What is intercession? Go between. Go yeah, to go between. So what the Spirit does is the Spirit helps you to pray, and the Spirit takes the inner groanings 
that you have, and the Spirit puts words and meaning to them even when you are unable to do it. Which means that when you pray, your prayers never have to be great and flowery. They can be simply the desire of the heart. And the Holy Spirit will take your prayers and dust them off and put a suit and a tie on them and say, this is what they're asking. And the best way that the Spirit does that is by giving you the words to pray. You don't know what you should pray for as you ought, but the Spirit Himself makes intercession. He helps you in your weaknesses. Why? Because He gives you the words to pray. If you don't know what to pray, pray this. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Blah, 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 blah. If you don't know what to pray for, pray the Lord's Prayer. And even if you don't understand everything that you're saying in the Lord's Prayer, that's fine. Keep doing it because the Spirit is interceding with the words that the Spirit has given you to pray. This is why also sometimes you don't realize what it is you're praying for, but the Spirit always knows what you really mean and what you really need and what you really are asking for when you pray. So the outcome of your prayers is uh, based upon what you are really asking. Like when you pray for healing and then a person dies, you can't say, well, God didn't answer my prayers, God didn't hear my prayers because that person died. No. The Lord heard your prayer. In fact, the Lord heard the prayer that was the deepest groaning of your heart, the one that maybe you didn't even realize you were saying, that you want the best world for this person, that the best healing that anyone can offer. And sometimes that means that to depart from this veil of tears is the best possible thing, as hard as it is for those of us left on this side. Uh, so, let's speak this again. Like the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses. For we do not Okay, what is the conclusion of the Lord's Prayer? For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. What does this mean? This means that I should be certain that these petitions are pleasing to our Father in heaven and are heard by him. For he himself has commanded us to pray in this way. And has promised to you this. Amen, amen means yes, yes, it shall be so. Uh, okay, thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. This also means that the power of your prayers isn't with you who say them, and it isn't with your brain that thinks of words to say in your prayer. Your prayer is not powerful because of yourself. It's powerful because of what the Lord does to you and what the Lord does with the words. Uh, so you pray in his name, which gives you power to ask for things as a child of God, and the effectiveness of your prayer is based upon the Lord. Thine is the kingdom and power and glory forever and ever. This also means then that when you pray, you should always be certain, knowing confidently and believing that your prayers are heard. That the Lord does listen, that the Lord doesn't ever have to stop and take a nap, so there's never a time when He's not ready to hear your prayers, and that when you pray, it's pleasing to Him. 
The Lord loves to be asked so that he can give. So when you pray, it is pleasing to him and it's always heard by him. And this, is, this goes back to a few weeks ago when I talked about tongue-in-cheek, me not caring about your feelings, which was really my way of saying don't base your reality on what you, what you feel. Don't base reality of faith on enthusiasm and the uh, tingly sensation you may or may not get. Uh, so when you pray then, this ties into that, your prayers are heard by the Lord and he delights in hearing them, even if you don't feel like he's listening. When you pray the Lord's Prayer, you should be certain that he is listening and that he does take pleasure in it. Uh, because he's promised to. Because he's already told you that he wants to hear you, that he wants to give to you. And you say, okay, well, in that case, here I go. All right, and then amen, amen means yes, yes, it shall be so. So to say amen is the word of faith. It agrees with what Jesus says. Hey, you're forgiven. Amen. I pray for things and I say amen. I believe that the Lord hears. I believe that he takes delight in my prayers. So uh, say amen boldly. Okay? Questions? All right. Goodbye. I want to read you something just in, in my study. This is a commentary on Romans by Martin Franzman, who's uh, well known. He was a late professor at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis and then at Westfield House at Cambridge, England. And he's also a hymn writer. We have a few of his hymns in the hymnal. Very dense. Uh, but poetic hymnody. It's, it's very good. Uh, but, so he has this short little paragraph on this verse, and I liked it so much that instead of trying to paraphrase it or take ideas from it, I thought I would just give it to you uncensored and raw. <laughs> so here's what Martin Franzman says. Creation groans, and we groan inwardly. And yet our prayers rise up too feebly. How great is that? That you groan and yet even when you pray, your prayers are feeble and impotent. The weariness of all things in this world infects us too. We do not know how to pray as we ought. The strength of our prayers is not in proportion to the glory that we pray for. But the law of the spirit of life is no mere general atmosphere in which we live. It's not an abstraction to you that God listens to your prayers or that the spirit works. It is reality. It is the personal presence of the spirit who helps us in our weakness. He knows the world of God and how men ought to pray for it. He puts his power into our praying of thy kingdom come, a power which breaks the limits of our human speech and makes us cry with sighs too deep for words. He intercedes for us. He is our paraclete 
our counselor. Paraclete is another name for the Holy Spirit, which is helper. The paraclete is the helper, which is the promise of Jesus. Wait here, and I will send to you a helper. And he does. It's the Spirit. Can you spell that? Paraclete? Yeah, I'll write it up here. We're done with Romans. We can erase some of this. I'll give you more than what you asked for, Morris. See, the Lord always gives you that for what you asked or something better, and I try to do what Jesus does, so. <laughs> Here you go. Paraclete. Is like this. And it's from the Greek. I believe this is, whoops, that's English. church language like Kyrie, Gloria, Paraclete. You say more than you realize what you're saying and you know more than you think you know. You know all kinds of bits and pieces of languages right now already without realizing it. It's kind of cool. See, you thought the church was a one-trick pony, but we're teaching you languages too. <laughs> and we're so good at it, you didn't even know you were learning. <laughs> Bill. <clears throat> I think it's a common in the Methodist Church or common knowledge among Methodists that John Wesley came to faith reading Martin Luther's explanation of Romans. Yeah, I think I've heard that. Romans is a, a good book. Um, although I don't, un, un, don't understand how someone like John Wesley can be the way someone like John Wesley is after having read the book of Romans because it seems like that book is sort of contrary to almost everything that he is. Uh -huh. But that was, I mean, he didn't consult me on that, so. Uh, okay, now. Paraclete is spirit, Holy Spirit. Paraclete is a name for the spirit, and it means helper. So when Jesus says, I will send you a helper, he's referring to the Holy Spirit. And if, through hymnody, there's a lot of reference to our great paraclete. Often it's used poetically because you can rhyme things with paraclete and it has a lot of syllables and it sounds a little better than Holy Spirit. Paraclete. Holy Spirit. So they say, oh, our great paraclete. Uh, and they put it into the hymnody. Did you? Did you have a question? Oh, okay. You had your question face on. <laughs> oh. Yeah, I was going to say, the well, Spirit does descend in the form of a dove. You're not really that far off. <laughs> oh, I love you all. 
okay, I now have two uh, business items to uh, talk with you about before we get into the class, which there's a new handout for on the table there if you didn't pick it up. The first one is that I have to leave early again right after church. I'm going to visit Kate again. I'm sort of scheduling it that the second Sunday of the month is my Sunday out to see him, so don't be offended. I love you all, but I'm not going to shake your hands today because I've got to bug out. Uh, then the second thing is, with this whole coronavirus yeah. deal going around, I figured I'd take the time to say something about this. Come to communion, and don't be afraid that you're going to get sick from communion. Uh, the Lord is your physician. You will never get sick from the cup that your physician offers you. So theologically speaking, you won't get sick from communion because it's the blood of Jesus which is designed to heal you. It's like saying that you're going to get sick from a vaccination. It's like saying you get sick from the flu shot. You don't actually get the flu from the flu shot. Okay? So you're not going to get sick from the inoculation, the vaccine that is the blood of Christ. Uh, and then medically speaking, too, if you want to read a boring scientific study about it, I can send you one, but just take my word for it. I read them. They're not fun to read. Hey, you're not going to get sick from communion. So come to communion and don't worry about it. If you're really, really, really worried about germs and you just can't help yourself, this is going to seem counterintuitive, but just come, come with me. Okay? If you're really worried about germs, take from the common cup, not the individual cups. The wine has alcohol in it, which will sanitize. Germs don't stick to silver and gold. So the chalice is a very, very clean environment. The individual cups are made of glass, which is great because we don't throw them away. We wash them and reuse them. But glass does not push away the germs like the precious metals do. And everyone and their neighbor reaches in to grab the cup. So, if, you, if you're really, really, really concerned about germs, just take from the common cup. But if you're not concerned, then just take whatever you normally would and come to communion and don't give a hoot about it because Jesus isn't going to make you sick. Here's a really great story about that. Uh, so a friend and professor at the seminary, Dr. Arthur Just, he's the one that we went to Israel with. He and his wife, Linda. Delightful people. Dr. Just was working in... Africa. I don't remember where he was in Africa, but he was teaching there at, I think, a seminary, and then he went to a church and assisted on Sunday for their service. And it was in a community that had about 99.9% uh, of the people that had AIDS. And he was there, and they had communion, and they didn't have any individual cups at all. It was just the chalice, and all of the people with AIDS were drinking from the chalice and then going back. And then the pastor there, that was the pastor of that congregation, looked into the chalice and realized it was about half full at the end. So he did what many pastors do, what this pastor does, and went to consume it. But he didn't do it himself. He gave it to Dr. Just, who sort of looked at him, and then looked out at the people, and the pastor went, 
(laughs) And he took it, and he drank it all. Because he said, you know what? The blood of Jesus is not going to make me sick. My physician, the one who takes care of me, is not going to make me sick. You don't go to the doctor afraid that your doctor is going to make you more sick than you already are. You go to the doctor because you know your doctor is going to help you. Well, you come here for the same, the same reason. Remember, this is not a country club for saints. You don't get baptized and then come in through these doors so that we can play golf and polo for the rest of your life and sip martinis by the pool. You come here because you're sick. This is a hospital. Baptism is your fashion statement. It gets you in. You've gone through the quarantine chamber. You've gotten your shower, and you've gotten your snazzy plastic wristband with all your personal information on it, and now you're in. So go see your doctor. He's going to take care of you. Okay, so don't worry about it. Just come to communion. And the more you worry about it, just come to communion all the more because it's good for you, and Jesus will take care of you. Okay? So that's that. Any questions about anything as we get ready to actually look at the Bible study? (laughs) Okay. We have so much to talk about here for Lent, and it's glorious. And hopefully, we'll limit it to Lent, and, and we'll have my pacing be good. Yes. Can you share anything about Cade? Is he doing well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cade's doing well. He, what I heard last time I talked to him was that he thinks he'll be there maybe another four to six months, and, but he'll probably be sent out. He's taking classes and is planning to take his high sat, I think is the test and uh, graduate from high school from there. And then he has a whole lot of plans in place about where he wants to go to school and what he wants to do, and uh, that's good. So they're, they're working with him, and he's doing very well. Uh, and, and I've said this before to some people, but as unfortunate a situation as he was in and as unfortunate as it was that he was sent to where he is now, you know, nobody, nobody would want that for him, but it is, I think, what has been best for him, and it's been very good for him. And Dwayne, you probably even know more than I do, but it seems we to were, me at least. We were there last week, well, and his first week in April, actually, they're going to start evaluating and even through the judge of the courts. And I, I'm going to call it the fourth series. And, and sometime after that, I'm not sure when, I'm going to start transitioning him out back home. Yeah, he's doing well. Yeah, he called me a couple nights ago just to double check to make sure I was still coming. Yeah, good. So he is able to talk to people. I mean, he is able to speak with people that are on his approved list of contacts. 
This is why I, last time I went, I brought a card from all of you because you can't send him mail. So even if you had his address, they wouldn't give him any of the mail if it's from somebody that isn't from his contact list. So being, being as shrewd as a serpent, I said, well, then I'll give a message from everybody, but it'll come from me because I'm on the approved list. <laughs> uh, so, yes. So, if there is a letter or something that you want to get to Cade, you can give it to me or probably to Dwayne, too. We can be your mules and sneak it in. <laughs> All right, yeah, but he's doing well. He's doing well. It's always a joy to go out to see him. Uh, and the people there have gotten to know me a little bit, at least, so... I guess they look forward to, I don't know how many people they get that come in a collar and a big black cassock with a big old crucifix and say, I'm here to see so-and-so. <laughs> so I guess I'm kind of a novelty there too. But uh, anyway, yeah. Other questions? Should we have a card each time for you to take this? Uh, we could. I didn't get one ready for today. But it, uh, I mean, we, we certainly could have a card. Maybe that's something we need to plan out that for that second Sunday. Have one ready for you. Well, sure. Sure, sure, we can just do that right now. See, look, it's like Philip and the Ethiopian unit. Hey, there's water. What's stopping us from being baptized? Well, there's cards. Uh, what prevents us? Well, nothing, really. Yeah, that would be nice. We'll just have another card for him. He likes to know that people are thinking about him. He asked me to make sure that I brought a bulletin with me because he likes to see the congregation at prayer and he likes to read the announcements. Hey, take note, everybody. Cade likes to read the announcements. You should, too. Uh, but he likes to have all that because he, it makes him, it reassures him that he's still part of the body and that he's not off on an island by himself, which is a good thing for us to do as best we can to make sure that he knows we're still thinking about it. All right. We're talking about Lent, specifically the practices of Lent, why we do the things that we do. What does everything mean? So we talked a little bit about piety versus pietism. Just think about it this way. Piety is good. It's the natural outpouring of faith. You should want to go to confession. You should want to come to church. You should want to pray. That's pious. Uh, and it's good. Uh, if, you're, if it's mandated and if you're forced to do it, then it's not good. It's pietism. Like, hey, if I go to a wedding, if you invite me to a wedding and then I'm there for the reception, and if I see any of you partaking of Coors Light or Bud Light or wine, or if I see any of you shaking a tail feather on the dance floor, ooh, you're going to hear about it on Sunday. <laughs> if that, or if I see any of you playing a game of cards in Snapchat, you're going to be getting a call from me. See, so that's pietism. You, you can play cards if you want to, and I'm not going to stop you from dancing. And if you want to have some wine or a Bud Light or a Coors Light or some other kind of beverage that is legal for you to consume, I am not going to be the wet blanket that tells you no. Because then I'd also be a hypocrite. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Okay, so mandated laws of holiness that go above and beyond the laws and things that God has already given you, not so great. Just don't try to be more religious than Jesus. Just do what Jesus tells you to do and don't add to it and you're going to be fine. It's not so hard. But now we're getting into the real nitty-gritty, so we're going to talk a little bit about Lent, and we'll probably get maybe a third of the way through the first little bit here. But Lent, I thought it was just me talking about the term Lent, uh, because I wonder if you've ever thought about Lent, or if you've taken for granted, like many of us do, that there is meaning and history behind the name of that season, Lent. Well, it's from uh, German Lenzin. I don't know if that was very good, Bill. Probably what, like B plus. B plus German at, at best. <laughs> and then uh, there's the Anglo-Saxon Lenkten, which just means what it sounds like, lengthening of days. Because the days are getting longer. So we decide to chop one bit off and move it to the other side, I guess. But anyway, so Lent is the common word for it now, which originated just from talking about the season. and Oh, that's the season when the days get longer. The lengthening season, the lengthen season, Lent. And then it turns into Lent. Uh, so it's really, you know, it's kind of neat if, if you like language and how it works, but otherwise it's sort of lackluster. Why do we call it Lent? Is there a big theological reason? Oh, well, no, it's just because the days are getting lengthened. <laughs> All right, uh, but here's where, it, here's where it does get cool. So you remember pre-Lent, what we call it, that's the Jesima, Jesima Tide, or pre-Lent, when we get all the really big, long names that you can barely fit up on the hymn board, like uh, sec, uh, Septuagesima, Sexagesima, and Quinquagesima. So the Jesima Tide is, is just pre-Lent, we're counting down the days to when Easter starts and we're getting ready to go into Lent. So really, one of the traditions was that Alleluia's were cut out after Transfiguration. And there's this tradition in the Lutheran Church where you sing Alleluia, Song of Gladness. I think that's the one. Alleluia, Song of Gladness. Which is an Anglican hymn, by the way, which is strange that the Lutheran tradition is to sing the old English hymns. But that's one of the joys of the church is it's full of little quirks like that. Uh, so, but you sing that and that's your last hallelujah and then you don't sing hallelujahs even going into or before Lent because it's like getting yourself ready. Uh, well, when we really officially cut them out, I really want the transition to be a little easier. So I'm going to cut them out just a little bit earlier. That's the thinking of it. But Jessamatide is counting down to Easter just like Lent is. Uh, so it starts a little ways back. Septua. Jesima means that we're within 70 days of Easter. Sexa Jesima, within 60 days of Easter. Quinquagesima, within 50 days of Easter. And how long is the season of Lent? 40 days. So after Quinquagesima, the next Sunday is the beginning of Lent because that Sunday is called Quadquagesima, or excuse me, Quadragesima. 40 days. 70, 60, 50, 40. 
And then the whole season is quadragesima because we're in the season of the 40 days. Or another way to look at it is that quadragesima is the 40th day. The 40th day before Easter. Because the thing about Lent is, Lent is 40 days. Uh, you don't have to be approximate like jesimatide. Well, we're, we're within 70 days. But once you start getting into Lent, it's, well, now we know that there are 40 days. And uh, you don't count Sundays, by the way. So that's why it's a Sunday in Lent, but not a Sunday of Lent. Because it's there, but it's not counted. So 40 days minus the Sundays, so we're in the quadragesima. And the Greek, that's, so that's the Latin, by the way, quadragesima. The Greek is really cool. Tessarakoste. I love Greek, it's really cool. Tessarakoste. The 40 days. And that also, I have just a little note. Uh, oh my goodness, I don't know how to spell Contraste to Pentecost. Pentecoste, 50th. Tesorocoste, 40th. See? So even when you say Pentecost, you don't even, it's, oh, this is just Pentecost. But you are, you're, you're, look, you're speaking Greek. Pentecost. The midweek, the midweek students know this. Don't you, Brian Ulrich? You know this because we talk about this in midweek. That's how you remember Pentecost. 50, the 50th day after the resurrection. Pretty cool. It's a neat little mnemonic. You learn the parts of the language. So this is a season that the church observes, really, um, even from the first century. Some, some church fathers argue that this is something that the apostles themselves... Here, I can pass it over. Let me bridge the gap for you. My want is to serve, you see. Uh, so some of the church fathers will say that Lent or this period of prayer and fasting and repentance uh, is, dates back even to the mandate of the apostles. Uh, and what we know for a fact historically is that the time of the resurrection, much like how Passover was an important period of time, so after Jesus' resurrection and ascension, that time is commemorated again and again and again and again, all the way down to, to now, uh, as being a holy time, because this is when Christ died and rose. So there were at least three to five days, like Holy Week, that they would take as uh, a time of prayer and fasting and meditation and repentance as they reflected on the works of the Lord. And uh, whether that was 40 days all the way back then or not, we don't know. Some people think it was, some people don't. But we say it's okay and it's enough to say that there was a time before Easter devoted to prayer, fasting, repentance, uh, devotion, whatnot, before Easter. So uh, Lent is... A really neat season. Actually, Lent and Holy Week are some of my favorite times of the church year. I know you must think I'm kind of a depressing person. I'd rather do a funeral than a wedding. I love Lent and Holy Week. The Holy Week hymns, in my opinion, are some of the best ones in the whole hymnal. And it's sad we really don't get to sing them all that often. Um, but they're really, they're really weighty. There's a lot that goes on in Lent and Holy Week. It's, it's a really uh, rich 
part of the church year. So, you know, the practice of uh, fasting and preparation for Easter and, and repentance and all this follows Christ as he departs into the wilderness in Matthew 4, which was the gospel for last Sunday. He is baptized and then goes up into the wilderness uh, to be uh, tempted by Satan. And the cool thing about that, too, is you need to, you need to read the gospels together uh, I have this really neat kind of a book called a synopsis, which has, it lines up all four Gospels together so you can read them all at the same time. And the editor puts all of the biblical accounts together so you can see, I can read Matthew and see what Matthew says at the same time that I'm reading what Mark says and compare how they are the same and how they're different. And it's really neat to do that. And I encourage you not just to read one Gospel alone, but to to make sure that you note all of the accounts of this. So uh, Mark 1 and Matthew 3 and 4, Jesus being baptized and going up into the wilderness. Now, Matthew's gospel is very catechetical. It's really the first catechism of the church, Matthew's gospel is. So it lays it out. This, boom, boom, this is what happens. Jesus goes down, there's baptism. There's, the, there's theological worth here because now your baptism is Jesus. And uh, yada, yada, yada. And then he goes out and he's tempted by Satan and he bests Satan in the wilderness and that's pretty great of him. Mark's gospel uh, always has heightened emotion. So if Matthew's gospel says Jesus, Jesus wept, Mark's gospel would say Jesus bawled his eyes out. If, Mar if Matthew's gospel says Oh, this person saw Jesus and was happy to see him. Mark's gospel says, he was overjoyed and filled with joy, almost to bursting. So everything that Mark says is heightened emotion. It kind of blows you away a little bit with what Mark says. And Mark's time is also really fast. Uh, Matthew sort of operates on southern time. Hey, we'll get there when we get there. We're just going to have a good old time. Mark's gospel is northern time, German time, okay? No late trains here. Everything's going to work like clockwork. Um, and it's immediate. Every event that takes place, then immediately this happens. Jesus is baptized, and immediately he goes up into the... And immediately he preaches a sermon, and immediately the lepers come to him. Immediately, it's just bam, bam, bam. And it takes... It almost feels like Mark is con or, yeah, Matthew is condensed in a way because you look at the sprawling gospel of Matthew. Well, this is the ministry of Jesus over the three-year period. And sit down and let me tell you about it. It's the gospel of Christ. And Mark says, all right, here's how it goes from start to finish, the end. Any questions? And that's sort of how Mark goes. And I tell you all of this because the differences between the baptism and temptation uh, in Matthew and Mark are great. Mark, Matthew says, oh, Jesus goes to John and all of this happens. Mark says, Jesus was baptized by John and then the Holy Spirit picked him up and chucked him into the wilderness and then he was there with wild beasts. <laughs> and it's... <laughs> Oh, I just love it. Matthew says the Spirit led him, and Mark says the Spirit picked him up and chucked him in there. Ekbalo, like you throw the football. And uh, so we follow Jesus. Hey, we're being chucked into the wilderness now. But don't worry. 
we'll have a good time there. Jesus made it through, and if he made it through, well, you know, we'll make it through too. Whatever happens to Jesus happens to you, which is a good thing for you. All right? So 40 days. Here's some things to think about with 40. Actually, don't, just don't, don't cheat. I'm actually, I'm curious. What, what do you think of with 40? What's so important about 40? I, I won't even give you the answers. I want to see what you say. You asked me a question? Yeah, what do you, th- what's 40? What, well, what do you think biblical, of with 40? It's biblical. But yeah, oh, yeah, but, but okay. how? Well, um, I just got through. It's all cheap. But the... Uh, Excommunicato! <laughs> <laughs> Yes, the flood. Yes, and the. Uh, uh, You're not supposed to cheat, Bill. <laughs> Sorry. There's another forty. Uh, 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 so here's the here's the one that I didn't think anybody was going to remember. When Elijah runs away from Jezebel, Elijah the prophet preaches the word of God, and more often than not, here's what happens when you preach the word of God. Wait a minute. What did you just call me? Did you say I was a sinner? Oh, you're dead, boy. That's how it goes in the Old Testament. And these poor prophets go, I'm just telling you what the Lord told me to tell you. I'm just trying to be your pastor. And Elijah gets hunted down by Jezebel and he runs away and he is on a 40-day journey in the wilderness. And then he goes into a cave and then the Lord comes to him and that's transfiguration. Remember, transfiguration is like a, a pocket. It's like a bubble. That, time, time doesn't work the way you think that it works. Not, not for God, it doesn't. Time for you is like a line like you did in history class. Well, when this is, this is when this happened, and then this. But that's not how it works for God. And transfiguration is when he's face to face with Moses, giving him the Ten Commandments, giving him his words, and when he's simultaneously talking to Elijah, telling him what to go out and preach. And in the Gospels, you read what Jesus is telling them about, and it is his ex-hodos, his exodus. He's talking about his death and resurrection, and that goes into the Ten Words, the Ten Commandments, and it goes into the preaching of the prophets of Elijah. Yeah. That's the one I couldn't remember was Moses was on the mountain with God for 40 days. Yes. And then this one I didn't look up. Okay. Uh, the flood was also 40 days. Yes, yes it was. Now, and here's the other thing, too, about these 40 days. More often than not, uh, oh, by the way, you can also say this ties into the bondage in Egypt because they were there for about 400 years. So the four, there's a four and a zero in there. Uh, But that sort of ties in as well. So this idea of 40, uh, the flood being stuck in the wilderness and being unable to go into the promised land, things of that nature. I mean, even running away from Jezebel, what does, what's the common theme with this? Fall away from God. Uh, 
well, okay, that's closer to what I'm looking for, but not quite there. Okay, yes, to a degree there's cleansing. Something else, though, that... Please read my mind a little bit better. Uh, <laughs> it's judgment. That there is divine judgment. And what does judgment come against? What is the, what is the purpose of judgment? Why does it come? Shows our sins. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, it comes against sins. Judgment sees sins and it does what it does, it judges sins. So, these, this idea of 40, in many ways, it's a number of judgment, but also a number of cleansing, too. Uh, the, by the way, this is why we talk about baptism as a cleansing flood, because the water theme, flood themes that ties into judgment against sin, Israelites go through the Red Sea. This is the flood prayer in the baptismal rite. The Israelites go through the sea on dry ground, but hard-hearted Pharaoh and his armies are crushed in the waters of the Red Sea. There's waters of judgment. So there's this idea of judgment against sin and purification or cleansing through repentance of that sin. Uh, and this is that, that idea of 40 tying into that. Uh, and then, especially with Lent being a penitential season, it, uh, it all sort of ties the season together that way, too. That you're, ref you're reflecting on your sins and, uh, and the cost for those sins. And so 40 is a good number uh, to tie it all in biblically and, you know, to preach. Everything preaches. Uh, the church year preaches. Why are script? Why why are the readings for the year prescribed in the order in which they are? Well, because it teaches you something. Why do we have the certain feasts and festivals and dates of the church year in the sequence that they are? Because it teaches, and because you follow Jesus. Okay, so uh, yeah, so forty. This number for the season of Lent maybe was within the first couple centuries. Maybe wasn't. We just don't know. But what we do know is that it was at least acknowledged, excuse me, <clears throat> acknowledged and prescribed at the Council of Nicaea. Do you remember when the Council of Nicaea was? This is just history trivia. 325. Yeah, 325. That's. AD. Yes, yeah, <laughs> AD. Uh, now, just some more trivia. That's not exactly where the Nicene Creed came from. We call it the Nicene Creed because it was begun in 325 at the Council of Nicaea, but it went through a lot of revisions and they kept working on it all the way until the Council of Constantinople. So some pretentious pastors will say, we confess our faith with the words of the Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed which I think is just dumb. Everybody knows, everybody knows what you're talking about. Just say the Nicene Creed. It's fine. Uh, but anyway, so that's 325. When they say, yeah, well, 40 days of Lent, or, or 40 days of the Tessarokaste, the 40th day, the, the period of um, <coughs> repentance up, leading up to Easter. So then we get to this. What is the purpose of Lent? Why do we bother with it at all? I like eating sweet foods. 
I don't want to stop. I like my life. I don't want to give something up or refrain from doing things. Why should I care about Lent and why bother? Yes, it is preparation for Easter. Uh, something that I like to say is, you know, in, in the realm of fasting or giving something up, the idea of um, those things that you've given up during Lent, they rise again with Christ and they're more glorious in the resurrection. But it's, in some ways, it's like the idea of delayed gratification, that you withhold it and then when you have it, it's way better than it was before be, just because you didn't have it. Bill. Uh, it's a, uh, an intense, I guess you would say, or a more intense uh, reflection on man's sin, man's fallen to sin, mm -hmm. uh, and then Christ's uh, passion and his death and resurrection mm -hmm. that saves us from our sin. So mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a not concentrated exactly because you study that all year, but it's, it's a focus on, on man's sinful nature and God's redeeming work for us. Yeah. The season of penitence, when you, when you look at that redemption and you realize that that was the cost of your salvation, so it, with a, a pious Christian heart, you say, well, I'm going to prepare for the celebration or the observance of the death and resurrection of Christ by re-examining what that cost was and taking a big step back from myself and looking back at myself and then thinking, hmm, I'm not so great. <laughs> I'm not so great. That was a pretty hefty price just for me. And he paid for the whole world. So, I mean, it's a, it's a good idea to be penitent all the time, but this is a period of heightened penitence just because we're coming up on Holy Week and the death of Christ for sins and then the resurrection and the joy of the forgiveness of those sins. So here is something from, this is from the Book of Common Prayer, which is Anglican, uh, but this is, it's an address, I think this is the address in that book for Ash Wednesday. Dear people of God, the first Christians observed with great devotion the days of our Lord's passion and resurrection, and it became the custom of the church to prepare for them by a season of penitence and fasting. I invite you, therefore, in the name of the church, to the observance of a holy Lent, by self-examination and repentance, by prayer, fasting, and self-denial, and by reading and meditation on God's holy word. That's Lent, period of preparation in the observance of our Lord's passion and resurrection, during which, as part of our preparation, we do these things. So there's a threefold purpose or a threefold observance of Lent. First, self-examination, taking that step back and looking at self. This is where it's okay for the eyes of faith to look at self if it's looking at self in, a, in an examin, examinatory manner, that you're examining yourself. So, you know, it's bad when the eyes of faith look at self and delight in self and pay attention only to the wants and 
desires of self, but it's good when the eyes of faith look at self and examine self and say, hmm, well, here's what the Lord says. I better examine myself and take a look at this. There is actually, oh, I don't know if it's in the category or in the uh, handle or not. There's a, a preparation for no, it is. It is in here. There's preparation for communion. And of course, I can't remember exactly where it is. Uh, here it is, 329, Christian Questions with Their Answers. Um, prepared by Dr. Martin Luther for those who intend to go to the sacrament. So here's really great. Do you believe that you're a sinner? Yes, I believe it. I'm a sinner. This is self-examination, by the way. This is, the whole, this is part one of what Lent is all about. How do you know this? Well, from the Ten Commandments, which I have not kept. Are you sorry for your sins? Yes, I'm sorry for my sins uh, that I have committed against God. What do you deserve from God? Okay, so there's all of this. And um, there's also rats. This isn't where I thought it was going to be. This is still good. Um, that you should look at this. How are, are you a sinner? Yes, I'm a sinner. All of these examinatory questions, but they're not exactly what I was looking for. There is another one where that is uh, preparation for going to confession. And there's a whole question about examining yourself in light of the Ten Commandments. Have you been a devout husband or wife? Have you spoken ill of your... And it asks you all those questions, and you, you're supposed to read them so that you're sitting there examining yourself. Have I done the things that I was supposed to do. Ooh, well, if I'm going to be brutally honest, no, I didn't. I haven't. So that's self-examination. That's a good thing. Uh, Jesus says to do that. John says to do it. St. John the Baptizer. Repent. Bear fruits worthy of repentance. And that's the same message that Jesus preaches too. Hey, repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. Okay, the other purpose is a bodily discipline. And then to what end is bodily discipline a practice of the Christian? Well, because you discipline the body, by, uh, and in so doing, you are working to flee from evil. You look at the, th the things of the flesh, the things of the body, the wants and desires, and you say, well... I'm going to remove myself from these because this is maybe not the best for me. And as I examine myself, I see that I'm perhaps doing things of the body or imbibing in things of the body I ought not to be, uh, or that I have, in some sense, attached myself or have addicted myself to things that I really ought not be. So I will flee from evil by restraining this flesh, and Lent's a great time to do that. Um, the other thing, we'll talk about this probably not next week, but the week after, because I have a whole thing planned for next week that's going to be really, really cool and fun, and you should all come, because we're going to have such a great time and learn so much. But uh, part of what it means to fast or to abstain or to uh, not 
refrain from doing things even. It's not, it's not just about what you eat or what you don't eat, but the idea of giving something up for Lent, like, oh, I'll give up coffee or I'll give up candy or I'll give up uh, cussing out my neighbor or I'll give up actions too. But the whole point of that is not so that you just say, well, I'm just giving it up for Lent A, and then when Lent is done, I'll take it up again. Or B, I'm going to give it up uh, and then just... I don't know what to do with all of my time. I'm just giving stuff up for the sake of giving stuff up. That's not the route that it's intended to take. The route it's intended to take is that you're giving up one thing so that you take up another. So if you've ever dealt with an individual who has an addiction, addictions are not things that are easily broken. Uh, actually, neurologically speaking, addictions are kind of fascinating because your brain builds reward paths it's kind of Pavlovian in a sense that you know that when something happens you'll feel a certain way or derive a certain amount of pleasure or X, Y, and Z and your brain starts connecting this. Oh yes, X plus Y equals Z and I like Z. So, And then from point A to point B your brain establishes a little route and then it creates a habit. And your brain does a lot of writing on itself but never any deleting. So once it's written in, once there's a pathway in your brain, it's there. Which is why, like um, Alcoholics Anonymous, no matter how many years you've been sober, you're still a recovering addict because you'll be an addict for the rest of your life because your brain has developed these habits and these pathways. So, um, but anyway, dealing with an addict is very hard because you can't just say, well, give it up cold turkey. Some people, if they're really strong, can do that, but usually they can't. It's very, very, very difficult to do because you have that reward already there and you have that habit that's already ingrained and it's like you're in this rut and you can't possibly get out of this rut. So one of the ways that you combat addiction is that you give up one thing and take up another. So that you replace one habit with another. You can't just stop doing that one you have to create a new habit so that your brain makes a different way, a different route, so you don't have to take the same route all the time. You take a different habit. Like my grandfather, I never knew him. He died before I was born on my father's side, my dad's dad. Uh, he was a smoker, and he gave up smoking. But instead of smoking, he would suck on toothpicks. So anytime he wanted a cigarette, he would carry toothpicks around and then he'd put a toothpick in his mouth and then he'd forget that he wanted to smoke because he had the toothpick in his mouth. But that's just an example of, well, he's given up one habit, but he's taken up another habit. And that's part of what this bodily discipline is, is that you're not only refraining from doing one thing. I, I'm going to refrain from speaking ill of my neighbor. By the way, if you're going to try and set Lenten goals, you should try to set reasonable Lenten goals. It's like your New Year's resolution. If your New Year's resolution is way, <laughs> way beyond your reach, you're probably not going to accomplish it. No, if you say something like, I'm going to stop speaking ill of my neighbor, that's, it's a worthy endeavor and you should really strive to do it. You're going to fail in that endeavor because undoubtedly there'll come a time when you will speak ill of your neighbor <laughs> or when you will cuss out a driver on the road. Uh, it, it, so that's difficult to get up. But you work towards disciplining the body by refraining from certain things, fleeing from evil, and by 
taking on another habit, which is why Lent also becomes a season of increased prayer and devotion. Because you give up one thing so that then you have more time to, like, uh, I'm done on Facebook for Lent. I know a lot of people that do that. I'm done on Facebook for Lent. Okay, that's really great, but what are you going to do with all of that time that you're saving in your day while you're not on Facebook? And the church and the season of Lent in particular say, well, now that you have all this extra time, because you know you spend too much time on Facebook, guilty as charged, by the way, uh, you know you spend too much time there. So you're, you're disciplining yourself and you're refraining from all of this, but now you have all this time. What are you going to do with it? Well, have devotions. Read your Bible. Sing some hymns. Replace the time here that you have now given up with a different habit. Increased prayer and devotion. Um, it's also one reason why the church has increased uh, an increased frequency in services. So we have midweek services so that you can come and get more church. That's a, that's a part of all of that. Uh, and then and this sort of you know comes in here spiritual discipline and warfare. So not all that has to be along with this. Because you can't flee from evil without also fleeing toward good. You can't give one thing up without taking up the other. I'm gonna flee I'm gonna flee from evil. I'm gonna stay away from evil. Okay. But where are you gonna go? You have, to have, you have to have a direction in mind. You can't just say, well, evil's over here and I, I don't want to be there. You have to have a direction to go. You have to go from evil over here to where there's good. So the two go hand in hand, bodily discipline and the spiritual discipline or spiritual warfare. That's what we're going to talk about next time, spiritual warfare and discipline during Lent. It's going to be really fun. Uh, okay, any questions? All right, great. If you're in the choir, we can probably do a quick little warm-up and refresh ourselves with the introit. We can just go in the conference room, and I'll see you at the altar.